Yeah. So, my name is Andrew. For those of you who don't know me, I am John's brother. And surprisingly to me, I'm a pastoral intern here. That's always a surprise to me. Um, So, I like cheesecake, and I'm allergic to dairy. I'm a husband and a father. I'm a friend to some of you. I might even be an enemy to others. But do you really know me? Because how much can you really know? Do you hear my thoughts? Can you search my heart? Can you test my ways through the fire? Who am I? Am I my story? Am I God's child? Am I the friend of Jesus? Who are we? So our psalm today, as we continue through our psalm series, is Psalm 139. And for those of you who are not as familiar with the numbers and the lingo, and the, we call it Christianese sometimes. This is the psalm where David, the famous warrior poet, um, speaks of God creating him. He says he's fearfully and wonderfully made. He says he was made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth, that God knows everything about him, every thought, every time he stands or sits down, even before a word is on his tongue, God knows it all. So my big question for today was, who am I, God? I thought I would start with something simple like that. And um, I called this sermon The Clay and the Cross. So I'd ask you to close your eyes with me as we go on a journey with David um, through this psalm. Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. You hem me in, behind and before, and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It's high. I cannot attain it. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning to dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me, and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you, and the night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, 
for I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there were none of them. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake, and I am still with you. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. O men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O God? Do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. See if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Whoa, the journey. So my first point for today is that God sees you. In the beginning of the psalm, we hear David speaking of God's omniscience. God knows everything. All the right and the wrong, every step on the path, or every stumble in the ditch. When I used to read this psalm, I thought David's like just reveling in like this awe of God. Like, whoa, it's so great. And now that I've read it a couple more times, I think he is reveling in the awe of God. And it's leaning towards the awful awe of God. Like when something is so good, it's not quite good anymore. Because... What happens when tainted gold comes in contact with the fire? It's refined. It's made pure again. Or what happens when a piece of clay is out of center, that's out of center of the wheel, and it comes in contact with the potter's hand? The hand is laid upon the clay. It's crushing him. It's beyond him. He says it hems him in behind and before. A couple of years ago, I got a potter's wheel for Jenna for Christmas. Um, Because I figured we like to paint paintings sometimes. So we're going to love every type of art. And side note, this was a big surprise. So I like went on this secret journey all the way down to Seattle and... Um, It was really exciting for me. I like doing secret missions. It's part of who I am, character. Um, Anyways, we both had never done any potting before. And I go and buy this, like, hundreds of dollars, like, huge thing. And, but we're going to love it. You know, in our ignorance, I'm like, we'll just watch a couple YouTube videos. We don't have to pay for a class. Come on. We're artists. So, do you know what I now realize? Being a potter 
is incredibly hard. And the potting wheel, this is a picture of a wheel, is like it's this big bin and it's got a metal plate. That's the metal plate. That's the wheel. And in the middle is the clay. Um, So centering the clay is the first and most important thing you have to learn. You cannot make anything, nothing, on the wheel without centering the clay. Okay, you can't even start. And the bigger the piece of clay, the slower everything happens. So at first when I was doing it, I kept fighting with the clay. I, was pu- I would push the clay, and it, would, it, would, it goes like this. Like, it's really, it's not good. And then I would pull it back, and then it's under-centered, you know? And I start to feel like one of those wacky, waving inflatable arm flailing tube men, you know, at the car dealerships. And so I'm like, yeah, you know, and have you ever felt like a wacky, waving, inflatable arm flailing tube man Christian? Like when you go up to someone and you're like trying to tell them the good news, but you're kind of like all over the place inside and they kind of sense it a little bit and they're like horrified. Okay, so... I eventually discovered how to center the clay, how the potter centers the clay. And it's not from any skill I had in myself, but from my exasperated failure and giving up. The potter keeps his hand steady. That's what he does. Your faithfulness, O God, reaches to the sky. He keeps his hand steady. You don't have to push the clay to center it. God will not push you to be centered in him. I've lost my place. Panic, panic. Start flailing. (laughs) Okay, so when the clay centers, it's this it's unexplainable peace. Everything's spinning, and it stops. The center of this thing stops. When God made us, I feel like he said, here, here's my garden, here's my creation. Cultivate it, and draw it in, draw it in, so that it can flourish. He's asking us, can you center this? Can you keep it centered in me? It's part of how, how we flourish. The same thing happens with the clay. After all the struggle and the mess and the waving arms, this thing just sucks in and starts singing. And it's peace. When you approach people and you are centered, they will know. I believe at the beginning of the psalm, David lost his center He knows God, but his heart seems to be flailing. He wants to run. I think we often struggle and oscillate between wanting to be seen and loved for who we are right now and then feeling like we're overexposed too much. They can see all my flaws, all my failures, and then wanting to hide again. I want to reveal my secrets to be loved anyway. Well, God hears the cry of your heart. He doesn't just love you when you're doing good. 
He doesn't just love you when you're sharing the good news. He loves you on your couch, when you're just walking to the grocery store for no reason, or when you're singing a song under your breath, your favorite song, because you're too scared to sing it out loud. When you, when you fail, when you fall down, when you succumb to peer pressure, when you speak badly about someone, when you desire a different life than you have, God loves you. David feels the merciful hand of God being laid on him. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? David might already have been running from God. Anyone been running this week? Me, maybe, at times? Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, he says. It's too wonderful. It's high. I cannot attain it because it doesn't feel wonderful. David is beginning to submit to the potter's hand as he has done in the past, as he will do again. He's allowing God to shape him. God sees you, who you are today, and who you are becoming. My second point is God chose you and made you. Creation was not complete without you. I like to think that before God made anything, before the garden and the fall, all the mess, he thought of me. And he said, yeah, that's going to be good. I'm going to make Andrew. Do you guys believe that? What about you? Not that I'm the center, but that I'm integral. I'm unique. I fit. We often say, I'm not worthy as Christians, that I'm wretched, that I'm a sinner. Now, our sin is real, but my sin is not who I am. So statements about sin are true in the sense that we haven't earned our value apart from God to be worthy to enter his presence. But these truths about sin must be held in tension with a far greater truth. The line in Amazing Grace, the famous hymn, it says, to make a wretch, what? To make a wretch his treasure. I'm the treasure of Jesus. I am his inheritance. So are you. I am the joy that was set before him. Because of that, I know without a shadow of a doubt that Jesus thought of me in the garden of Gethsemane before his death. On the darkest of nights, before the cross, with the hand of the potter God resting heavy on him, I think Jesus thought of me. I had this moment once in prayer where I was not feeling precious. And I felt like Jesus said to me so clearly, like, I thought of you. I decided you were worth dying for. Jesus has declared me worthy through what he did. He's made me worthy again. 
And he didn't do it in heaven. He didn't speak it out and declare it from the throne. It's not a teaching we learn about or an idea that's up in my head. He came here to this mess, to this mire, and was made flesh and blood so we could be free. Truth incarnate. So Jesus, he's up there, he's all-powerful, and he empties himself. He empties himself to be a baby. Our God wet the bed. Our God fell a thousand times learning to walk. He became totally dependent on a teenager named Mary. And he came here to this creation because he wanted to tell us something about it. He wanted to say, this place is worth saving. It has not earned its worth. It is worthy because I am. Because I made it. In essence, he's saying, I am not finished here yet. You will know when I'm finished. That's as Pentecostal as I get. We're the icing on the cake of his creation, made in his image and likeness. He chose us to rule as stewards in his place. Yet at the same time, we're frail, aren't we? Sometimes I don't feel like a ruler of creation. I feel like I'm made from the dust. We're made from the earth. We fell, didn't we? One early church father has described the human being as being like a mirror. Adam reflected fully the glory of God like a mirror. And when he fell, we all became tarnished. But Jesus came so that we could take his life into ourselves. We can cover ourselves in him that we might shine again bright as the sun from one shade of glory to the next as he transforms us. Just as John told us last week, the, the glory of God is a human being fully alive. But when I've had a hard day, when I make all the wrong choices, or when terrible things happen to me, sometimes it's easy to feel like it's God's fault. He did this. David said, all the days of, you, of my life, you formed for me. You wrote this in your book. Did you write this into your book? Did you allow it? You chose to create me for this? Why'd you make me, God? Why me? Why this? Why don't you just fix me? Then I could reveal your glory. Then I could be joyful and glad. God sees in the darkness somehow. David says, even the darkness is not dark to you. He works in secret at times. God loves a secret mission too, it seems. God wrote all things into his book, the good and the bad, and he's not finished with us yet. This leads me to my third point. 
that God reveals who you are at the cross. So you, you were made, and you are being made. It was not a single event. David says that God formed you in secret. At, your, at that time, your purpose, your unique purpose, why you are an integral part of creation, was hidden from the world. It says in Proverbs 25, the glory of God is to conceal a thing secret, but the king's honor is to search out a thing. The heavens in height and the earth in deepness and the king's heart can no man search out. It was David's right as the king to search out a matter. It it was his glory and it's our glory to search out things on the earth. But what of the purposes of the heart? Now in Jeremiah, there's this famous verse that says, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Whenever I heard this quoted in a sermon, I'd be like, I'd just always be like, no, that's not true. You know, we've been redeemed. And, but look at what, what is the next verse following it? Is God speaking and saying, I Jeremiah is like, oh, I'm deceitful. I'm, woe is me. And God says, I, the Lord, will search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways. Now the world is going to tell you many things about who you are. The world will sometimes say, you can become whoever you want to be. The clay is yours for the forming. Whatever you dream, desire, Go after it. You can achieve it. And now at the same time, opposed to that kind of picture, the American dream, is the world's now telling us we're our DNA as well. And we're patterned. We're encoded. We're like this collection of cells and matter and electricity. We're impulses. So both sides of the world, although they're somewhat opposed in one way, they they are saying, just do what you were made to be. Just do it. Just give in. Pursue your desire. Many years after David, his son Solomon, considered the wealthiest and wisest man in the world, a man who pursued desire in many, many different areas. He was heard crying out, meaningless, meaningless. Everything is meaningless. There's nothing new under the sun. Everything is a striving after the wind. Whoa. Stark. But in a way, he's right. In a way. Solomon is a forward thinker because without the cross, without the resurrection of Jesus, it was. Solomon saw everything under the sun. And in crying out meaningless, he's crying out for a savior, someone to bring dead things to life. And David, his father, and the other prophets of the Old Testament are continually crying out for a savior. There are many psalms that actually lay out the, the events of the life of Jesus. Even the words from the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, come from a psalm that David wrote. So David says, 
So at the end of the psalm, we approach these verses that are very hard as 21st century thinkers to understand. David says, Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. O men of blood, depart from me. Do I not hate those who hate you, O God? These are actually the verses that if you're doing a Bible memorization plan or like pray through the Psalms or something like that, they will leave these out. They're like, don't pray that because that's weird. So how do we deal with this when Jesus clearly tells us to love our enemies? That seems pretty well clearly opposed, does it not? So these challenging verses are explained in many different ways. These verses are, it's kind of a dispute. So what I'm now sharing is my own reflection on this. It's not from Mount Sinai or anything. Um, So for me, I hear David trying to separate himself from evil. Much like the Israelites, they worked very hard to be a, a people who were set apart for God. But David, when he says, oh, men of blood, depart from me, the irony here is too loud in my ears. Oh, men of blood. David was a famous warrior. He would come into Jerusalem and they would say, David has slain his tens of thousands. Can you wash the blood from your hands after that? David, who are these men of blood? David's wrestling with himself as well as the people that are nearby him. The only people that can depart from you are those that are close to you. And in another way, David is also justifying himself by looking to other people. And this is something we do. He's comparing himself with other people, other nations, people who have done worse than him, people who are like more evil, more venomous, David says he tries to love these people. In other Psalms similar to this, he says, I tried to love them and they turned me aside. Those are, those are who they called the enemies of God. People who are venomous towards God's love. So that's a small slice, I think, of understanding David's present position where he's wrestling with himself and other people who he considers more evil. But this is a prophetic statement This is a statement that's true for him where he's at, and it's also a statement that looks forward to Jesus. Now, Jesus was a man who, in Hebrews, it says he hated wickedness. Jesus hated wickedness. He called sin a sin. He didn't say, your sin's okay. He never shied from the truth. But how did Jesus deal with wickedness? He loved. He loved. And how did he ask the how did he deal with the wrath of God? All these things that that's been done to us that that we've done. He says, "Yes, God, slay the evildoers, but let me go in their place." Jesus says, "Let me go in their place. Let the wickedness be placed on my shoulders." Because mercy triumphs over judgment. Every one of us became an enemy of God's love. 
Every one of us has been venomous towards him. So I, um, I grew up in a Christian family, and my dad's a pastor, and um, I knew Jesus growing up. I, I had a commitment with Jesus, and when I became a teenager, I just, I don't know if I took notes from the prodigal son and then went, or I, I was angry. I was venomous. If people would talk about the church, I would actively go after it. And um, as I grew up, I just, I went into a, a lifestyle of sin, um, of drugs and sex and partying, and I was numbing pain, deep pain that I had. And when I was around 25, I came back to God, and and so that was in Florida, and I'd, I t- had a couple years where I really started to, I was like, I'm going to make a new life and just turn from that old stuff, and I was following God, and I was rooted in a church, and, and then I moved. I moved to L.A. I was uprooted a little bit, and I was a new face in L.A. You know, they don't know anything about me. I'm flying this new plane. I'm flying with this um, new captain I really wanted to impress, and we touched down in Las Vegas, And he turns to me and he says, guess what, Andrew? I'm getting married this week. And I'm going to make this weekend my bachelor party. And I was like, ah. I had this like plummeting kind of feeling like, how am I going to get out of this? And still like have this guy like me. And so we're getting off the plane and his phone rings and it's his fiance and she's calling him and she's like, let me talk to the other pilot. And suddenly I'm on the phone with her and she's like, you've got to take him out on the town for nice dinner and drinks and go gambling and get wasted and then go to the strip club. It's a bachelor party. And I was like, ah. I had this like petrified, frozen look of horror on my face. And I got off the phone with her and he, and he was like, oh, don't worry. Like that's, I'm not into that. And I was like, yeah, yeah, I'm not into that. And we go out and we, we go to the restaurant. I had probably had too much wine. And then we go and we play blackjack and drinks just keep coming. And I started to lose who I was. I started to make decisions that were rejecting God's love. And this is a, a story that ends badly. But it's not the end. And I ended up, yeah, I drank of the darkness. And I woke up the next morning and I just wanted to die. <laughs> oh, that you would slay the wicked, oh God. I woke up wanting to die. Just kill me. I'm not good enough. You see? Look what I did. I can't believe I ended up there. And every one of Jesus' disciples deserted him. Nothing was hidden from his sight. And nothing you have done or can do will separate you from the love of Jesus 
I was certain I'd ruined all chance of ever becoming a witness for anything except for hypocrisy at this point. But the strangest thing happened. I arrived home from that trip still wearing my uniform, still sweating out alcohol, possibly. And I walked into my new, like, pretty new apartment, and there's my roommate's there. He's in the kitchen. This guy is not a Christian by any means. And he just turns to me and he goes, what do you believe? And I was like, what? I was like, what? And he was like, do you believe in God? Not, not with animosity, but curiosity. Do you believe in God? He said. And I kind of raised my downcast eyes and stilled my heart and thought of Jesus who died for my sin, for all the sin of my entire life. And I said, yes, I do. What do you believe, he said. In a stuttering voice, I uneloquently tried to explain I believed in Jesus Christ, that he died for me. And because he lives, I can live. And I came home from that hell, from making my bed in Sheol, and was given a chance to share the gospel. And you know what he, he said? He said, I knew you were a Christian. I could see it in your face. There's something different about you. I went into my room and just like wept. I chose to reject the love of God that night, but it's not the wrath of God that drew me to repentance. It's his kindness. Where my sin abounded, God's grace abounded all the more. And bringing our darkness to light brings glory to God. In my shame, I decide I could either be that two-faced kind of Christian who goes to church and lives however he wants, or I could be the person who walks in the light. A person who believes that with all my fears and failures, God is transforming me into his image. Should we keep on sinning? Then, so that his grace can abound? By no means. If God's glory was able to shine through me on that morning, how much greater does his glory shine today when I'm free? The grace of God says to you, it's like a lifeline to a drowning person. The grace of God says to you, follow me. It's the journey out of Egypt to the cross. Now, why I share that story with you is that God sees us. He sees where you are at. He saw me that night. He knew the plans that he had for me, how he formed me and wrote my story and continues to reveal who I am today at the cross. I'm someone who will speak of the glory of God transforming my life. I'll do it without shame. I'm someone who speak boldly into sexual brokenness because I've been there. Jesus came to this world. He asks for our sin. He asks for your book to be nailed with him to that cross. 
Now, there are days when I forget, where I don't love myself. I don't know what I'm doing here. And then I hear the gentle voice of Jesus calling me again to the cross. You see, the world was just this repetitive cycle of events. It was day after day, an endless repeating pattern. Some religions will say the evil and good are equal and balanced, that they're balanced within the circle of time in our lives. It's karma working itself out. But the cross happened in time. Jesus called us back to the cross. So the only explanation for who we are must be hinged on those three days. So when I find myself unsure, I turn my face again to the cross. The faster I go there, the faster I find myself again. It's the center of the wheel. It's where he forms us. So let's pray. (laughs) Dear Jesus, just as David finishes the psalm almost as he starts it, but now centered in you, he says, Lord, search us. Search my heart. Try my ways. Reveal to us who we are, why we're here. Help us to bring you glory, God. Lead us in the way everlasting. Thank you for your son. Amen.